You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Good morning. Week 10 of the comeback series. That means that next week is the long weekend. Pastor Keith is going to finish our series. He's going to talk about the comeback church next week. So he's going to fix everything I've said that's been errant in the last few weeks. He'll fix it all next week. You're not going to want to miss it. It's the last week of our comeback series. But the long weekend means that is coming. I don't want to speak it because I believe if I don't speak it, it won't happen. That thing where school starts and all that stuff gets going... I want to start today just by giving a shout out to our Next Gen team. You know, this last weekend, and some of you are parents, you would have been a part of this. Uh, They took the people, all the kids who were coming up and moving from children's ministry to junior high ministry, and they had a sleepover with them. If you've ever done a sleepover, you know there is no sleep happening. But the staff were there and they just made it so special. They had all of the families come that are related to them and have a meal together. They wrote, had their parents write letters to them so they could read it through the night and letters about who they're becoming. They even had them write, each of the kids write a letter to their future self. So when, when they hit grade nine, uh, our youth leader, O'Shea, is going to send them their letters. So they remind them of who they are. They got, they got a sweatshirt to remind. It was like an incredible job. And I just wanted to give a shout out to that next gen team. Uh, our children, our youth, our junior high, young adults. I mean, they're just killing it. It's just fantastic what they're doing. So, and, and by killing it, I mean, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, no one is getting harmed. <laughs> and, and then I wanted to just remind you, it's kickoff weekend in two weeks' time. And I, I encourage you a couple of weeks ago in a video, and be inviting someone to join you that weekend. But invite someone that hates church. Invite someone who used to go to church. Invite someone who's never been to church. We are working hard to make sure that weekend is a weekend that the people you invite, your family and friends, will be so thankful they ha- that they actually came. So make sure you're inviting. And I also challenge you in the video to consider giving that weekend. We start a brand new season of impacting this city, building healthy families, and developing deeper relationship with God together. And we got a lot planned this fall. And we're not like a government organization. The way we do it is because I give and you give and we all give. So I want to encourage you this fall. Let's start the fall out right. Maybe consider giving if you've never given. Or if you, you regularly give, uh, consider like Shelly and I, what more could we do to just help fuel the mission as we head into this fall to make a difference in people's lives and help them know God, love people, and impact our city? And then on the other side of the kickoff weekend, did you notice this? We're going in a brand new teaching series. How many don't know what YOLO means? Okay. In every gathering, people have been a little hesitant to raise their hand because they're admitting I'm a, I'm a, I'm a boomer or up. Uh, YOLO is just an acronym. It means you, you only live once. We're going in a series on how is this world going to actually end. We're going to talk about some of the more complex Bibles, uh, books of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the apocalyptic literature. There's all kinds of opinions. There's all kinds of uh, crazy things as well as interesting things being said about it. Well, we're going to talk about it for a few weeks. Dr. Van is actually going to uh, kick off our teaching time. He's going to teach a couple of times in that series, Pastor Keith and myself. And in the final week, we're doing Q&A with you. 
Throughout the series, we're going to invite you to submit your hardest questions about how the world will end and what's going on with it. And we're going to answer your questions that last gathering. So you're g- get ready for it, because all the hard questions I'm going to give to Dr. Van, don't tell him, but he's getting all the hard ones. All the pastoral ones I'm giving to Pastor Keith, because there's no greater pastor than him. And every easy one you put in, that's mine. I'm going to take the easy ones as they come in. But you're not going to want to miss this series. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to encourage you and build you up in your faith. Okay, let's get into today's teaching. Today, we want to talk about circumstantial setbacks. Those moments where we find ourselves in a setback that maybe we had nothing to do with. How do you get through them? How do you move beyond them? Well, here's some truths about circumstantial setbacks. Everyone is either in one this morning or you're coming out of one, or you will be in one. See, here's the interesting thing. When you read the Bible, this is why I I love the Bible so much. When you read the Bible, you realize every person in it has experienced a circumstantial setback. Nobody gets an exception. There are no exceptions to this rule. We all face circumstantial setbacks in life. Everyone does. So I know today, whether you're online or in this room, I know there are probably a good many people going through one right now. There are some that are coming out and you feel the thaw and the warmth of the spring and summer starting to come in your soul and spirit and life. And others of you, there's one coming. That's not ominous, it's just normal. It's a rhythm of life. Here's the other truth, truth about circumstantial setbacks. Every circumstantial setback is hard. Every one of them is hard. No exceptions. If you're in a setback and it's not hard, it's not called a setback. <laughs> You know, that's just called normal life. Every circumstantial setback is hard. So here's what we're going to do. One of our church members, Pat Gillis, is going to come in a minute, and he's going to read the portion of Scripture for our teaching today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to already open to it. Acts chapter 16, we're going to read verses 16 to 31. This is an ancient setback, a setback that Paul and Silas experienced, and from it, we're going to see how to move beyond it. And then immediately following Pat reading that scripture, we're going to show you a little video. So keep watching the screens. And it's a modern day setback. It's one of our church family members, their family, talking about a setback and how they got through it. And then I'll come back and we'll look at Acts chapter 16 together. So Pat, when you come and read this, now Pat's really shy, so you know, go easy on him here. He's very shy. Let's read Acts 16. One day on our way to the place of prayer, a slave girl ran into us. She was a psychic, and with her fortune-telling, made a lot of money for the people who owned her. She started following Paul around, calling everyone's attention to us by yelling out, These men are working for the Most High God. They're laying out the road of salvation for you. She did this over and over again a number of days until Paul, finally fed up with her, turned and commanded the spirit that possessed her, Out! In the name of Jesus! And out of her, it was gone in a split second, just like that. When her owners saw that their lucrative little business was suddenly bankrupt, they went after Paul and Silas. They roughed them up, dragged them into the market square. Then the police arrested them and pulled them into a court with the accusation that these men are disturbing the peace, dangerous Jewish agitators, subverting our Roman law and order. By this time, the crowd had turned into a restless mob out for blood. The judges, along with the mob, had Paul and Silas' clothes ripped off 
and ordered a public beating. After beating them black and blue, they threw them into the jail, telling the jailkeeper to keep them under heavy guard so there would be no chance of escape. And he did that. He threw them into maximum security cell in the jail and clamped leg irons on them. But along about midnight, Paul and Silas were in prayer and singing a robust hymn to God. The other prisoners couldn't believe their ears. Then, without a warning, a huge earthquake. The jailhouse tottered. Every door swung open. All the prisoners were loose. And suddenly, from sleep, the jailer saw all the doors swinging loose on the hinges. Assuming that all the prisoners had escaped, he pulled out a sword and was about to do himself in, figuring that he was good as dead anyways. Then Paul stopped and said, don't do that. We're all still here. Nobody's run away. And the jailer got a torch and ran inside, badly shaken. He collapsed in front of Paul and Silas, and he led them out of the jail and said, Sirs, Paul, Silas, what do I do to be saved and to really live? And they said, Put your entire trust in the Master Jesus, and then you will live as you were really meant to live, and everyone in your household. Hi, my name is Ivan, I'm 12 years old, I'm in grade seven, and I had three brain surgeries when I was eight years old. Uh, when Ivan was growing up, he is really uh, some kind of little bit uh, shy type. Ivan's uh, growing up was very normal kid. We enrolled him to uh, Taekwondo during his early years. Uh, my wife was calling me about that Ivan is throwing up. He was so very weak that he could not even walk uh, on his own. And I was so worried. I told my husband, this is different. This is something different. I, I put down the phone. I, I kneeled. I asked God's help. We decided to bring Ivan to the doctor Wednesday morning. I could not believe it. Uh, even though the doctor was showing me the, the computer screen, showing the head, I even asked him, are you sure, that's, is that my son's head? When we walked into the ICU to, uh, to wake up Ivan, they asked Ivan to uh, move the uh, left hand, and it moved. Ivan, can you move your right uh, leg? It moved. Okay, Ivan, move your right leg. That's the time Ivan did not move anymore. Our son is not waking up, so I started, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. My wife and I were really uh, crying about it. If God's decision is to take Ivan away from us, so be it. Of course, in my, in my heart and in my mind, no, Lord, please no, but if he will suffer, it's up to you, Lord. They have to go to a surgery right away. You need to sign the paper, and then he showed us a waiver. But I told them, can you give us a few moments? Let us talk to our Lord first before we talk to you. And the doctor, no, you need to sign this already because it's so important, it's urgent, he said. And then George said, yes, we will come back to you. And then we prayed. Mm -hmm. 
he was explaining, okay, he might die, he might be paralyzed, he might not recognize you. So when it's time for him to wake up, I was really, really praying, Lord, I hope he can remember even my name or just say mommy. Then when he woke up, the first question that the nurse asked, who is beside you? That's my mommy. Oh my goodness, I'm jumping. I'm jumping for joy and praise God, praise God. I'm, I'm like crazy in the ICU. When they told us we need to do opening of the head again, and I, I felt so, so weak because this is now the third time. We were just like so emotionally, spiritually drained at that, that time. Uh, it's, it's like questioning, when will this end? I was so scared. I'm really, really scared. I said, Lord, help us. The first thing, Lord, help us. We were told that they could no longer put back the original bone flap. The bone is really infected. But my wife was so insistent. I said, no, God will, will answer my prayer. And I said, Lord, Lord, please put back the same bone, bone flap. Please, Lord, please, Lord. Lo and behold, God answered uh, her prayer and we put it back. It's like, hooray, hooray, I was holding the doctor. Thank you, thank you so much. God answered my prayer. Again, it's another miracle. Ivan's uh, flap is his original bone flap, not metal. The doctor asked me, whoever your God is, he's really pouring out lots of blessings and miracles on you. the things that my parents and all my family members like brought me up to and like the summer camps like it all led up to that moment I guess. He let us exercise our faith during that moment. Having the joy out of these difficulties in life. It's a real peace that you cannot have it anywhere but only with Jesus Christ. With what we have gone through I believe there's only two words trust God. Since he already knows what your plan is and will keep you safe, then there's nothing really to worry about. Yeah, Ivan and his family were in our first gathering this morning, and I'm thankful for uh, the vulnerability of many of our church family that have been sharing stories from their life throughout this series. The question is, no matter what the circumstantial setback is, is, how do we respond to these setbacks? And if you're in the middle of it, maybe more importantly, how do you move beyond them? How do you respond? How do you move beyond them? In the text in Acts 16 that Pat read, there are three practices that are key to whatever setback you might face in life, you can get through it with these three practices. And then I'm gonna add one bonus truth at the end when we end our gathering. But there's three practices that we see here that are key. So in the passage, Paul and Silas are in northern Greece in a city called Philippi, and they're praying by the river. They're doing life with Jewish and Gentile believers. And as he's walking through the village, 
There is a girl that's following Peter and, or Paul, and he's prophes- she's prophesying, saying, this is a servant of the Most High. But the, she's not prophesying uh, and gifted by God, but there's a spirit that's controlling her. And she's being human trafficked by these people who are making money off this gift of hers. And so Paul has it. Paul delivers her. And if you notice in the text, it was instantaneous. She's set free. But just like every other place in the Bible and every other place in your life, when the gospel encounters spiritual powers in this world, there's always fireworks. There's always fireworks. Someone's going to lose. It's not the gospel. And in this story, Paul and Silas get dragged into their circumstantial setback. They're dragged before the courts, before the magistrates at the time. They're, they're anti-Roman teaching. They're agitators, Jewish agitators trying to stir things up. And they're thrown into prison. They're beaten and thrown into prison. Now, a Roman prison in this ancient culture isn't like a modern-day prison. Modern-day prisons are designed for long stays. Roman prisons were designed for short stays because it was very short. You were either getting executed, you were going on trial quickly, or you're going to be freed. So there were three options. The two were the biggest ones, and especially when people were beaten in that culture. When you were flogged by the magistrates in that culture, six out of ten people would die during the beating. It's an incredibly traumatic moment. So they're dragged into this setback, this dark, dank, deep hole that would have been a Roman prison in that time. Do you ever feel dragged into it? Have your circumstances ever dragged you into that dark, deep hole? Maybe you lost your job and your financial needs began to drag you to that place that you didn't want to go. Maybe someone gave you a relational ultimatum and you already know the outcome. You already know how this is going to end. Maybe you, you've experienced like Ivan did, a life-threatening or a terrible diagnosis and you're not sure which way is up. How do you handle this? Maybe it's an accident. How do we deal with these circumstantial setbacks? So Paul and Silas are in prison, but the gospel can't be imprisoned. And they're there in that deep, dark place, and it's interesting. They begin to sing. They begin to pray. And as is read in the story, an earthquake happens. The doors swing wide open. The prison guard thinks they've gotten free, is about to commit suicide. Paul and Silas step in and say, no, don't do it. We're all still here. They didn't run. Fascinating. We'll talk about that later. And instead, what happens is this man becomes a follower of Jesus. He's baptized. And by midnight that night, Paul and Silas are having a feast at his house. I mean, what a turnaround. What a turnaround from a terrible setback. But in this are three practices that if we do, we can find our way through any setback. But these practices are hard only because they're kind of like car insurance. I don't know. You know, if you sell car insurance and, or your insurance agent and stuff, we do love you. We would just like lower rates. Can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah we, we'd like lower rates. And is there anything worse than paying car insurance at a rental when you're renting a vehicle? Yeah, this last spring, Shelly and I were going to Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm renting a car at the airport, and I've got a credit card, and I know that the credit card gives me insurance. So I go to the counter, and I'm ready. I'm ready for this spiel. I have I prepped for this. I have role-played for this moment. And I come up to the counter, and I gave my booking number, and I said, and she said, do you have a credit card? I certainly do. And my insurance is with it. To which she responds, and she said, well, it's okay if you want to risk uh, a possible accident on credit card insurance. 
And I said, do tell. And she began to list a litany of possible scenarios where there may be exceptions, where my family could be destitute. And after she does that, she kind of says it ends it this way, kind of nonchalant, but you do whatever you want. <laughs> well, listen, friends, I'm ready for this. I know this spiel. I'm a man. I've never had an accident in a rental vehicle. And Shelly and I had a great week in Georgia, accident-free, accident-free. Did we get the insurance? Well, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I got a dump, luck, a dump truck load of insurance. Here's the thing about car insurance. It's useless until it's not. Oh, what a waste of money insurance is. Home insurance, life insurance, car insurance. It's just a waste of money until it's not. And here's the thing with the practices I'm about to show you in Acts chapter 16. There are things that, just like that car insurance, you kind of feel like, why do I need this? You know, because why? Because you're too confident right now. If things are going good, have you ever noticed that about that? We're all really confident when things are good. Maybe, maybe we're just too busy for these practices, or maybe we're too stretched for these practices, or maybe some of the practices don't come easy, and so, just like car insurance, we're tempted to say, later. Later. But here's the thing, if you'll apply these things, they have the potential of getting you through any setback. They will get you through any setback. Here's the first one we see in the book of Acts chapter 16. You need to, when you find yourself in a setback, a deep, dark, dank hole, you're not sure how to get up, you're discouraged, you're feeling the walls are pressing in, you are in a setback, remember your community. Remember your community. Did you notice earlier in Acts 16 it says this, a mob quickly formed against Paul, and can you say this word with me, and Silas. All you grammar nerds, what is and? It's a conjunction. What does a conjunction do? A conjunction connects Paul and Silas. When you go through the New Testament, you realize this is a common thing with Paul. This conjunction follows his name often. You'll see there's Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and John Mark, Paul and Titus, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, Paul and Philemon, Paul and Onesimus, Paul and Lydia, Paul and... There's lots of Paul ands. See, it's fascinating. Paul, if you noticed, didn't wait until he got into his setback to have an and. He didn't meet Silas in the prison. Some of us wait, and we find ourselves in a terrible setback, and we're all alone. And maybe you have a cellmate with you, but it's not the one you chose. They might not even be helpful. Here's the thing with Paul and Silas. They were, he was building community with people way before he faced a circumstantial setback. Here's a fact. You can take it to the bank. Any of you who have lived any length of time, you know this fact is true. You know the fact is we can come back from any circumstantial setback far easier when we're not alone, when we've got others with us. So here's the question for you. Who is your aunt? Who is your aunt? Now, it's easy for me to say Jonathan and Shelley because she's my spouse. And if you just have one aunt, be careful. That's a lot of pressure to put on one person. We were made for community for a reason. 
It's got to be more than the people just in your nuclear family unit. What, what's your end like? Is it a historical end? It's the, kind of the friends you grew up with? And maybe you haven't talked to them for years. The relationships have fizzled. Can you imagine, you know, in the middle of your worst moment, texting them, Instagramming them, message, Facebook messaging them, and, hey, remember me? Vaguely. <laughs> or is it a workplace community? And you have lots of friends at work, and so you don't need friends here. You've you got lots of friends out there. But you don't have a spiritual community. Not one where you're known and where others know you. I mean, this is why community groups are such a big thing around here for us. One of our staff members, he and his wife uh, just became part of a community group this last year. They hadn't done it before. And, they, and to his shock, he just said, I never knew that life would be, I'd have a community of people that go through stuff with me. I never knew it could be this good. You, you need to find your community before you find yourself in your circumstantial setback. This is really critically important. And if you noticed here, actually, if you can jump back to the list that, of Paul, you know what's fascinating about his community? It's incredibly diverse. This is a very diverse list of people. Now, I say that because we're in a community right now, a church community that's very diverse. But you're always going to be tempted to flock together with people that look like you, talk like you, and are the same age as you. Yeah, but not Paul. I mean, Paul had peers and ministry there for sure. Paul hung out with young men and mentored them. They were his friends also. Paul knew married couples. Paul knew single people. Paul knew rich people. Paul knew slaves. And he did life with all kinds of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. He did life with many different generational backgrounds. Now, I've learned, and it's a learned behavior. I've realized, man, my life has been so much richer by having friends from different generations. I have 20-somethings that are just great friends of mine. I have a great friend who's 74. I have great friends in between. And you know, there is a richness you miss when you just hang out with your own generation. I know this. I get a lot of stability. I get a lot of encouragement and wisdom from many of my friends who are older than me. I get a ton of youthful enthusiasm and hunger and vigor from a lot of my friends who are younger than me. I benefit from those, and I'm trying to benefit them also. Here's another practical thing. If all your friends are your age, eventually, you may not have any friends. <laughs> but if you get some from diverse ages, you may have still some friends, because we all age out. Let's keep moving right along. I didn't mean to get stuck there too long. Here, here's the thing, friends. When it comes to your first point is remember your community and build your community before you find yourself in a circumstantial setback. Here's the other one. Remember your training. Can you, this one's so important. I'd love you to say it out loud with me. Remember your training. Remember your training. Here's what it says in Acts. It says around midnight, Paul and Silas in that deep, dark, dank prison. They're in their circumstantial setback. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other, prayer, other prisoners were listening. Now, I've heard this story so many times growing up in the church. Now, if you're new and this is the first time you're hearing it, welcome to Paul and Silas. But if you've heard it as long as, and often as I have, you've probably heard someone say, well-meaningly say, and please don't amen this. They've said something like this, you can worship your way through anything. 
You can praise your way through anything, and it sounds so good. It's just not true. Because it's not what Paul and Silas are doing here. It's not true to this text. It's not true to the interpretation of what is being shared here in the book of Acts. That's a nice preaching point that all of us preachers love to use. But it's not helpful when you're in the middle of that deep, dark, dank prison. See, to say you can worship your way through it is to minimize worship to being a tool you leverage to be able to get you through something. And it's really a misunderstanding of what worship really is. Friends, worship is not about you. Maybe that would be cathartic for us to be able to say worship's not about me. You ready? Let's say it together. Worship is not about me. It's not. Worship is not about how you feel. Worship is not about your circumstances. Worship is certainly not about the pref- your preferences. Worship has nothing to do with what Natalie led us in or didn't lead us in. Worship has nothing to do with you. Worship is all about God. Can, can we say that together? Worship is all about God. See, you don't leverage. It's not a tool to get you or make you feel better or anything. Worship is something that Paul and Silas were doing, not because they were trying to get out of there. They were doing it because that's what they did. It was their habit, no matter what circumstance they found themselves in, whether they were by the river in Philippi, praising and worshiping with other believers, or they were in a prison in stocks, having been beaten. They knew this, God was there and God is here. He's everywhere and he's always worthy of praise, regardless of what's going on in my life, God. If you did nothing else for me, you are worthy of my worship. See, that's an understanding of worship that changes things. They're not worshiping because they're trying to get out of something. They're worshiping right in the middle of something. Here's what I know, though. You do what you train for. Uh, My grandmother, uh, before she passed away, her husband passed away first, my grampy. And they've been married 60 years. And some of you actually in this room, you know that feeling. It's uh, one, probably one of the deepest pains you'll feel when you do life with someone for 60 years and you love them. And I have no idea why, but my grandmother was in her farmhouse in rural New Brunswick, and my younger brother Malcolm went and spent two or three days with her. Malcolm was just a university student. He b- barely knew which way was up. He certainly didn't understand grief and all that process. And he said to me after he came home, he said, Jonathan, I like a, Granny was crying all the time. And Granny kept saying to me, Malcolm, what am I going to do? And Mal didn't know what to say. But he said, I I noticed, though, after the first day, the next day, Granny slid behind her piano, and she began to sing her hymns. She began to sing, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. She began to sing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. She began to sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. These are old songs that warmed her heart. And then then she began to cook again. She loved to cook for her family, and she began to cook again. Now, why was Granny doing that? It was her habit. She had been doing that long before she ever got in a circumstantial setback. 
And she began to lean back into her training in the middle of a circumstantial setback. Dr. Henry Cloud, three years ago at the Global Leadership Summit, he's a Christian psychiatrist and author and speaker, and he talked about how the Navy SEALs train, one of the most elite special ops units in the world, how they train, and they're crazy in their training. Like they are trying to thin the herd, they're trying to, to, to move out people that aren't strong enough to get through it. And this is why they train so hard. They make this statement, you don't rise to the challenge, you fall to the level of your training. You don't rise in a circumstantial setback to the challenge. You fall to the level of your training. I was talking to Pastor Matt this morning. Oh, he's right in the front row. There he is. Because uh, he, he, he did a triathlon yesterday. So that's where you, you swim and then you bike and then you run. And uh, I just thought, you know, and I know he's been training for it and prepping for it. I was just thinking about what if I had shown up? I mean, I just showed up. Like, he's been training and prepping for that big thing, but I, I, I joined him in this triathlon. All I could think of is, like, I know how to swim enough not to drown, but to swim any length of distance, he'd be done his try by the time I, I came in. I would not rise to the challenge before me. I would fall to the level of my training. Why do we think it's so different for us? Why do you think we have an exception clause in these moments? See, friends, when it comes to the habits that we form now, they're precisely what sustains us in the middle of a circumstantial setback. Not only do you need a community, you need to train. I, I, I think of it this way. Let's think of worship, just as I was talking about earlier. Uh, I, I visit people in hospital rooms. I don't do enough of it. I wish I could do more of it. But, you know, you learned something as a pastor a long time ago, and you probably know it if you visited someone in a hospital. You know that when you go into that hospital room, it's not about you, right? Oh, well, let me explain it. Because I want you to be helpful, actually, when you have to go in. When you go in, you may have had a bad day. You may have been arguing with your spouse. You may have had a bad day. Uh, you may, whatever's going on in your life, it doesn't matter. Because when you go in that room, there's one priority the person in the bed. So I, a few years ago, I'm training a young pastor in Montreal. And he's training, I said, hey, come on this hospital visit. And he knew the person. I said, come on in, and you know, I'll, I'll talk to you about how you pray with someone and encourage them and come alongside the family. And so I brought him in, and he breaks down crying. He just starts bawling. The person in the bed starts comforting him. It's okay. It's okay. Starts to pray for him and stuff. And slowly, I'm trying to say, isn't that nice? And I take him out in the hallway. I say, get yourself together, man. What's going on? He's a tender-hearted guy. And there was a... T it was a anyway. It's, that's, that's not the order of things. Friends, this isn't a hospital room. It isn't. This is a church community. And when you come in here... He's the priority. I know we got our needs. I know we got our hurts. I know we got our troubles. I know sometimes we come to gatherings like this because we're so desperate for someone to pray for us. We're so desperate. And that's good, friends. That's why we come. But don't make a mistake. You're not coming to find me. What am I going to do? You're coming to know God. You're coming to connect with God in a way that he tangibly shows up in community like sometimes you don't ever feel in isolation. You come to worship 
him. He's the priority. He's front and center. And here's the beautiful thing. It happens in worship just as it does in a hospital room. Some of you visit a hospital room. You know when you visit someone of deep faith? It's, it's weird. Because you go in to encourage someone and you leave like they've just built you up. They've encouraged you. Why? Because they're just bleeding Jesus everywhere. You know, they're in this big setback in life, but you wouldn't know it because they just have a way of honoring Christ right in the middle of it. And you walk out of that place and you just go, man, I'm better for having seen that person. I hope they were with me. And there's this beautiful thing that happens in worship. When you get your focus on the vertical, that worship is not about you. It has nothing to do with you. Oh, you get distracted with all kinds of things. Hey, just stop it. I'm being very pastoral here. Sorry. I'm not trying to lecture you. I want to say this though. It's all about God. And when you come in, like I've sat in the same gathering three times in a row. I've heard Natalie lead that worship set three times in a row. Saturday night, 9.30 this morning, 11.15. Every time I come in, unless I put it on remote control, every time I come in, I just say, man, I get a chance to have an audience with Jesus right now. And he's worthy of my praise. And when you turn that, all of a sudden, when you get the vertical right, God gets involved in the horizontal. When you get focused on him, all of a sudden, his encouragement begins to seep into your circumstances and the things that are going on in your life. Here's what I can tell you, though, about your training. This is tough truth, though. Tough truth. No, back to the next last one. Tough truth. I always say this relationally when someone's meeting someone and she's really cute or he's really handsome. And you know, your heart starts to flutter. I always say, don't get too involved with someone until you've seen them bumped. Because whatever comes out of them there, that's the real them. That's the real them. And we all have a good version of us, and, but, but when you see someone who's had to be, someone's told no to them, or someone, they've had a tough moment in life, you see what comes out of them. That's their substance. Here, here's a tough truth, but a true truth. You can tell in the middle of a setback what level of training you actually have. You can tell where you're at. It's one of the best gauges. One of the best gauges of where you're at. So in life, this is the part that feels like car insurance, but it's not. In life, when it comes to training, it's, it's praying in advance. It's learning to pray before you have to pray. So you can pray here like you'll pray there. It's all of a sudden, you know his voice, you know him, you've been in conversation with him, and when you're in your dip, d- deepest, darkest moment, you're not afraid to use your voice and speak to him. Why? Because you know him, you know him. It's, it's, it's worshiping in advance. So when you're there, you're able to worship through. It, it's connecting before you ever get there. And this last one I'm going to give you, because it's been a best illustration of my life, of how I've built and trained this habit in my life is giving. Here's what I mean. You look at that list, I don't do them all very well. There are some that come more natural to me. Worshiping is something that comes more natural to me. Praying, I work at. And I know some of you, you breathe it. It's easy for you to pray. I love that about you. Because some of you do a lot of work in that area. I have to work to discipline myself to pray. Worshiping just comes natural. Uh, connecting is difficult for me. Now, uh, you might see me as an extrovert, but I'm a fake extrovert. <laughs> I love people, 
but I'm fueled by myself. And so sometimes connecting, I'm, I'm thankful for people in my life that make me connect. I need to. Giving, though, has always been easy for me. And I, again, that's not a feather in my cap. It's just I was raised in a family that taught me how to do it right from the beginning. Honor God with your finances. So I never really struggled with that. Now, that's not to say I'm better than anyone in this room. I'm just saying, let me illustrate with it why I say giving. Shelly and I have been in moments where we were church planting and moments even since, and she's in the room, she'd know this is true, where we didn't have two nickels to rub together. I didn't know how we were going to feed ourselves moving forward. And you know how I felt in those moments? Confident. Bold. Because I was able to go to God and say, God, I've always put you first in my finances. I've done that, God. And no, I know this. Your word promises that you will provide for my needs. And so, God, I am coming to you boldly and asking you to provide for our family right now. And no word of a lie, and Shelley will testify to this, God is never disappointed. Now, I didn't give in order to get. I didn't. I gave because God asked me to. It's part of what I do. I honor him with that. And when you learn to develop these training habits before you're in a setback, man, you are far more confident when you're in the middle of it. You are far more bold to go before God and ask and petition him. So friends, first practice, remember your community. Second practice, remember your training. Last practice, remember your standing. Remember your standing. So back to the book of Acts in the story. In the story, it says, Then he, being the prison guard keeper, brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now what's interesting is he had the opportunity to even ponder this question. Because look, they've been in a setback. They've been beaten. They're in prison. All of a sudden, a miracle happens. The doors are open. Why didn't they run? Aren't you tempted to run from your circumstance so setback? Don't you want the first ray of light to go, I'm out of here. I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of here. Why are they remaining? Well, because they knew something that many of us forget when we're in the middle of a circumstantial setback. They were not living for the here and now. They were living for the there and now. Here's what I mean by that. It's so easy to lose your perspective when life is beating up on you. But as a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that Jesus' spirit is inside of you in eternity is what matters most. For the follower of Jesus, next slide, that our spiritual lives are not primarily about escape. Some of us, we make a spirituality around that and you end up short-circuiting what God wants to do in your life. For a follower of Jesus, our spiritual lives are primarily about the eternal. They're primarily about eternity. It's having an eternal perspective. Paul and Silas know that once you decide to follow Jesus, you're living an eternal life. You are now in the here and now. Now it's about the there and now. We are here and there. That, in other words, whatever we go through in life, Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He would basically say this. Listen, when it seems like it's all over, it's never over. It's never over. In fact, he says it more eloquently. He says this. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. 
We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they're doing it to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Your lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. It's a different perspective in the way we approach and deal with the things that we're going to struggle with in this life. The circumstantial setbacks. Remember your community. Remember your training. Remember your standing. Don't lose perspective. You know, this is tough for, I think of even parents. Parents, your kids will go through some circumstantial setbacks. And often as parents, we're tempted to be their savior. We rescue them from every little bump along the way. And in doing so, the collateral damage is a resilient faith. We don't mean it for that reason. But sometimes you've got to let Jesus be their savior. And you've got to model in them to be able to look to Jesus, not to mom and dad or mom or dad. Because you're not their savior. You're their steward. Jesus is their savior. For some of us, we have such a vision for comfort and relief in our lives. We've just got a vision for comfort and relief that we've lost focus of what really matters in life and the eternal things that matter in life. So friends, if you're in the middle of it, remember your community. Start building one if you don't have one already before you ever get there. Remember your training. Start, listen, if you need to go into the archives of our teaching, we have lots on teaching about prayer and worship and all of those things. And then remember your standing. Here's the bonus truth. The one thing that will help you maintain perspective in the middle of all of this is simply this. Remember who you are in Christ. Who does he say you are? In the middle of your anxiety, in the middle of the darkness, who are you? You are who Jesus says you are. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.